Ushers will kind of seat some people that don't have seats right now um, and just try to accommodate everybody and, uh, um, and make sure you, you know, social distance and follow the COVID <laughs> protocols. But if you can all push in and get as close as possible. Yeah. So. Cheeky. Um, no, welcome everybody. So great to see everybody here today, and uh, we're just excited to be in the house of the Lord, to worship Jesus, and just to fellowship together as the body of Christ. God is so good. And uh, we're starting a new series today. We got uh, lots of fun things going on um, this morning, and so we want to get through our service and kind of let you guys see some stuff happening. It's actually not much. I'm building up too much, but we have a coffee truck, so get a coffee. Uh, yeah, and uh, some other things to show you, but we'll get to that later. But we're starting this new series called um, Things to Come, and uh, what we decided to do is this summer we had been um, having our, our series, summer series, through the parables of Jesus, uh, really blessed by that, and then we were planning to get back into this fall, our picking up in our uh, letters from prison that we'd been doing last year. Uh, we've gone through Ephesians, Philippians, we're going to pick it up again in Colossians, but what we decided to do is just to kind of look at some things to come, to do a quick little study on eschatology, uh, which is the study of end times and last things. And we thought with, you know, kind of many new people, we, we thought it'd be good to sort of share a little bit about what we believe is a church regarding many of these things. These are things I feel are getting talked about less and less in church, and so uh, myself and our leadership team thought it'd be great just to do a little mini-series on things to come. I was planning to do about a four-week series and look at uh, different events that are to come. I have a little bit too much uh, faith in myself, I think, to think that I can fit that into a four-week series because as I've been to study and prepare, I'm going, there's no way we can do this in four weeks. In fact, the sermon today I wanted to do all in one go this morning. That's not going to happen either. So um, we're going to break this down to as many weeks as we think it's going to take to cover everything. But here's what we're going to be looking at. Here's a little simple timeline of the end times. This is what I believe is going to be unfolding. This is breaking down very simply for us. But we're living right now in this church age. Next thing on the horizon is the rapture of the church, which proceeds then moves into the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period. After that, is the second coming of Christ, distinct and separate from the rapture of the church. And then that moves into, after the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign of Jesus on the earth physically, literally a thousand year reign of Christ. And then it moves us into, after the thousand year reign of Christ, the eternal state. Those are the different events that we're gonna break down and look at over the next few Sundays that um, we're gonna be here together, Lord willing. And so that's what we're going to break it down. Now, if you want a little bit more of a detailed timeline, you can look at that. All right, that's good enough right there. We'll move that on there. Um, but here's the deal. Yeah, read that in the next 30 seconds and then uh, I'll take it off. No, we have printouts of that on the back table. If you can make your way over there 
after fighting the crowd like a fish upstream. Uh, you can grab one of those handouts, back table in the corner of the sanctuary. And if, there's, if they're all out, please let me know. We'll print out more. But this is from my friend Charlie Campbell with Always Be Ready, uh, great apologetic ministry. You can go to his website and find lots of resources, alwaysbeready.com. And so that breaks it down way more uh, than just this simple timeline that we're just kind of going to be tracking and using as a bit of a guide here. So this morning, what we're going to focus in on is, of course, the rapture. That is what I believe is the next thing on the prophetic calendar to take place. There's nothing that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. That's what we are excited about looking forward to. But like I said, this is something that oftentimes sort of gets dismissed now uh, among many Christians who have become a little bit maybe disillusioned with the talk or the idea or the teaching of a rapture. Maybe they've grown up like I did in the 70s and the 80s when all these films were coming out like Mark of the Beast and, and you're seeing all these people getting beheaded in these movies and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what's freak? It freaks you out, right? And I lie in my bed, I'd hear pots falling in the kitchen, thinking my mom had been raptured. I'd be calling, Mom! And she wouldn't answer. And I thought, oh, I'm left behind, right? Freaked me out. But you see, what happened was that you grow up, you're thinking, you know, in the 80s, like, the Lord's coming anytime. You got the debit cards. Everybody goes, that's one step closer to the mark of the beast. He's coming soon. Don't take the debit cards. And everybody starts thinking, like, this is it, right? He's coming soon. And I felt that way. And I still feel that way. But here's the problem is that some, now they go the other way and they go, you know what, we've been talking about this for so long and it's not changed. Like, it, it, do we really need to talk? Is he really coming again, like soon? Is this something we should be focused in on and people get disillusioned to the point where even, you know, people might start kind of mocking or scoffing those that like to talk about prophecy. You know, Peter has a verse for that. He says in 2 Peter 3, knowing this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And I'm, I'm afraid that some even within the church have gone disillusioned to the point where they begin to scoff and, and, and look down upon prophecy as though like, you know, what's the point of it all? But I'm thankful for Bible prophecy. I think prophecy gives us such a great blessing. Here's some things that uh, I think prophecy does for us, the benefits and blessings for us today. Prophecy proves that God is real and the Bible is true. When you look at fulfilled prophecy that has already happened through scripture, that has been fulfilled exactly, precisely, so that you know when there are things that are being spoken of yet to come, you can bank on it. The Bible's never been shown to be false, wrong, or has got a 99% accuracy. No, 100%. The Bible is true and God is real. Secondly, a prophecy promotes evangelism in the church. I think when you begin to live with that expectancy that Jesus could come at any moment, well, I want to live in a way where others are hearing the good news of Jesus, that nobody's getting left behind. I want to share my faith more with people because I know time is short. Thirdly, prophecy promotes holy living. When you begin to think and live in a way where you go, Jesus could come at any moment, I want to be living ready. I don't want to be living in a way where I'm going to be ashamed at his coming. Where I'm going to be like getting caught up in the air going, Jesus, by the way, I don't know what I was thinking down there when I was just doing that when you showed up and I wasn't thinking you're going to come today. No, I don't want to be explaining myself. I want to be saying, here I am, Jesus, I'm ready. Let's do this. Let's go. I want to live holy, expectant, ready for Jesus to come. Fourthly, prophecy provides hope 
in a hopeless age. You know, when you see all the things that are going on, if I don't live in a way where I realize, you know what, the world is getting crazier and crazier, but it only shows us that Jesus is coming that much more sooner. If I didn't have that hope, man, I'd be getting a little bit more nutty than I already am. I'd be like going, what is happening in this? But I realized, you know what? This is exactly unfolding just as you said it would, Jesus. And, and I know that you're coming soon. It gives me hope. I am blessed by that. So that's why I believe prophecy is important, why we're going to take some time and talk about these things here. Now, there are many Christians that believe in the second coming of Christ. They're like, yeah, we believe Jesus is coming again. But this rapture idea, man, that's far out there. That's some kind of conspiracy, weird sort of thinking there. And, and, and people have that kind of view. Listen, I want to clarify something here today. I don't know many of your background or even what you believe, but I'm going to be sharing with you why I believe in the rapture. And you might have an entirely different view, and that's okay. These are not salvation matters. These are matters of interpretation. This is the way that I see the Bible unfolding and teaching, and I believe the Bible is teaching a rapture. We're going to take some time to look at those things. But if you have a different view, it's okay. We can still be one in Christ. These are not salvation matters. I just hope that through this series that you will be able to come and you know, begin to have you know, the right view and feel more comfortable being at church here at Riverside. So that's all I'm kind of hoping actually will come with that. No, I'm teasing. But if you got different ideas and things, that's okay. And, and we can talk about it. And these are not matters that I have to you know, vehemently argue for. All right, because these are not matters of salvation. This is the, the blessed hope that I have, that I see the Bible teaching. And so that's what I, I hold to. So I trust that as we spend the next few weeks looking at things to come, you too are going to be comforted and be even more excited for the days that we find ourselves in. Not to be living in fear or worry or anxious, but to be going, man, these are exciting days because this is exactly what Jesus said would be coming. So I, I pray and I hope that you'll be encouraged by that. So like I said today, we're going to focus on why I believe in the rapture, and more so why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, one thing that opponents of the rapture love to try to point out is they say, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. It's just a man-made-up kind of doctrine or teaching. You can't even find the word rapture in there, so give me a break already with this. But when you follow that argument along, you have to take it towards other doctrines that we'd hold true to like the trinity the word trinity is not in the bible so if you say well the rapture on the bible so we can't believe it well then neither then can we believe in the trinity that uh that the triune nature of the godhead god the father god the son god the holy spirit yet we see all through scripture the bible teaching that we believe in a trinity though that word's not there that's something that we've just termed to kind of give a description to this doctrine or or teaching just as we have with the rapture now some like to say the rapture really only came into view in the early 1800s with John Nelson Darby. How many people have heard of, of John Darby? All right, some of you. So many believe that that's kind of like the, been the, the father of the rapture view, that it was only through him that this began to kind of gain some momentum and steam in the early 1800s. But the idea of the rapture is something that you can trace back to you know, the Bible and early church fathers. For uh, one case in point is Irenaeus in AD 175 said, and therefore when in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said there shall be tribulation such as had not been since the beginning, neither shall be. He's talking about the church being caught up, being raptured up. We'll talk about that word, that term here. But that word caught up comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17 
when Paul talks about uh, we shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. He uses that word harpazo in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And so the Latin Vulgate translates that word harpazo in the Latin Vulgate as rapimir or rapturo. And that, that simply means, translating that word harpazo, it means to snatch up forcibly, to carry away from the Latin Vulgate rapturo or rapimir, we get our English word rapture. That's where it comes from. So it's all translated right from scripture. So to keep us on track today here, which is you know, gonna be very tall order because there's so much to cover. Like I said, I was hoping to fit all this in into one Sunday. We're not gonna do that. But uh, we gotta keep this moving. I'm gonna be talking fast, so I hope you can follow along here. But we're gonna use just the word rapture and we're gonna look and break down each letter here as to give some kind of, uh, of again, reasons why I believe in the rapture. Well, I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, kind of a mnemonic style here. So first one, R, reason for the tribulation. Now, if you got a Bible, hopefully you do, turns me to Daniel chapter nine. You prophecy buffs know exactly when you hear Daniel nine, you're like, yeah, oh yeah, I knew he'd be going there, I'm sure, yeah. That's about right. Daniel nine, verse 24. And Daniel 9 contains, I think, one of the most astonishing prophecies in the Bible. It's known as Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Now, when you use that word 70 weeks, the, the word weeks is like a Jewish idiom that speaks of a group of sevens. More precisely now, when you look through Daniel's 70-week prophecy, we're looking at a group of seven years. 70 groups of seven years, equaling 490 years years. So let me break this down a little bit here for you. Let's read Daniel chapter 9 verse 24. It says this, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So right away, Daniel's told, listen, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Who are his people? Well, Daniel's a Jew. So speaking of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, these 70 weeks, these 490 years are determined specifically this period of time for Israel and for their holy city for Jerusalem, all right? This is the breakdown that we see here. Reading on in, in, in verse 25 now, says this, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 altogether, if you're not good with math like I am, but I've spent a few hours adding those up and I've got to 69. It says the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times, verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Let me stop right there. So what we see now, what started out at 70 weeks, he says 69 weeks now uh, are fitting into this first period. 69 weeks, which equals 483 years, breaking down even more, 173,000 880 days. Why are you breaking down that much? Because it's so incredible to see how this all unfolds. It says it's been given now for you these 69 group of seven years, 483 years, 
given from the time that the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes. It's going to be that amount of time. Now we know from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, that the decree went forth for Nehemiah to go back with people into Jerusalem to rebuild the city that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, where Daniel now is in captivity, in exile, in Babylon, as he's writing this prophecy. To go back, we know in Nehemiah 2 that the date was given. It tells us there, given in in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which is specifically March 14th, 445 BC. The Bible lays out for us the dating, the time, the year of the king, and we know from history this is exactly when it was. And so from this command now, until the Messiah, Daniel's told would be 69 weeks, or 483 years, or 173,880 days. See, a very interesting thing took place. If you add up those days from the decree, March 14th, 445 BC, yeah, out of those days, it brings us right to the day that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, being heralded, proclaimed, praised for the first time publicly as the Messiah. Right? Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. That day was April 6, 32 AD, exactly 173,880 days from the time that, that decree went forth to build Jerusalem. God's word fulfilled exactly to the day, one of the most remarkable and astonishing prophecies we have in the Bible. But here's the thing. How many years were given at the beginning in verse 24? 70 or, or weeks? 70 weeks. 490 years. We've just covered 483 years. There's seven more years still unfulfilled, which he gets into there in verse 27. Notice this. It says in verse 27, then he shall confirm, and this is speaking of the prince who is to come, and the people shall destroy the city. Remember verse 26? That's speaking of the Antichrist. So the prince who is to come, he will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So this is speaking now of this time that the peace covenant or treaty is signed which brings us into the seven-year tribulation this last period of time that is reserved for israel you see we're living in an interval time right now between these two periods in daniel where those first 483 years have been fulfilled but now the last seven years are yet to be fulfilled and they will be reserved for israel because this is a prophecy given for daniel's people and for his holy city, specifically for Israel. That's the reason for the tribulation. This is a time when God is going to begin to focus in on his people Israel again. He's going to pour out judgment and wrath upon the world. That's the seven-year tribulation. But it's going to be a time where he's going to begin to stir in the hearts of his people Israel once more. That's why Paul can say, and I believe it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation, all those that are living at the time that are Jew, when Paul can say, all Israel will be saved. Because God's going to focus in on them again through the tribulation. But that's not the time for the church. Where's the church going to be? The church is going to be raptured up. We're living in a church age right now. But the church is going to be removed for God once again to begin to focus in on Israel again through the tribulation. That's the, the reason for the tribulation. It's not for the church. That's why we're going to be raptured up, taken out of the way before 
that judgment and wrath that God comes, and before he begins to focus in on Israel once again. Daniel's prophecy, seven-week prophecy, reveals that very clearly for us. So secondly, we've seen the reason for the tribulation. Let's look at accounts now in Scripture or typology that kind of reveal a rapture because the idea of somebody being caught up, taken up in the air, is not a new one. It's not something that is like, man, that's absurd. When has that ever happened? Well, you look through Scripture, you go, hey, we see a precedence set for that already. Look at Enoch here. Enoch walked with God, and then what happened? He was not, because God took him. Genesis 5, verse 24. Enoch was just out there, close to God, walking with God. Suddenly, he's gone. He's raptured up. He's translated, taken up to heaven. Elijah, in the same way. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. These two never faced death. The only two men that didn't face death. Many believe that they might be the two witnesses that come back in the tribulation period, but we can't get into that right now. Don't get me on a rabbit trail now. We'll cover that next time. Get to the tribulation and look at all that fun stuff. But thirdly, Paul was a, a man that was harpazoed. I don't know if that's a, a word I made up, but harpazo. You know the word harpazo, second Corinthians, or sorry, first Thessalonians 4 17, caught up. Harpazo in the Greek is where we get our word like harpooned from, right? Where you're kind of like grabbing all of something, you're seizing something in a sense, right? That's the idea. Paul was harpazoed up to heaven, second Corinthians 12. Verse two to four, I know a man of Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up in the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up in a paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for man to utter. Paul was a man that experienced this being caught up, taken to heaven. And he's playing coy. He's like, I know a man. It's like, it's him. He's like, I'm not looking to get any kind of fame. He's not going on some publicity tour, writing books about, you know, what I saw in heaven. In fact, Paul's like, I can't even describe not only what I saw, but what I heard. I can't even describe it. He's not trying to make anything of himself, but he later reveals like, it was me. I was God to heaven. I saw these things for myself. I think that's why Paul lived with such a, a, a radical, like he knew what was to come. He knew what was awaiting him. And that's why he could say, man, I consider the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul saw it. He knew it. He knew what he was talking about. He's like, man, it is all going to be worth it, gang. Whatever we go through in this world, it's going to be worth it. So Paul was caught up to heaven. And then we also see Philip, who was speaking with that Ethiopian eunuch, right? And they go and get baptized. Suddenly, it says in Acts 8, 39, now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Philip experienced a transition of being caught up. Now, he was caught up just to be placed in another spot, all right? They didn't go to heaven at that time. They were a little bit missing out here. And then also, we're gonna see in Revelation, the two witnesses in Revelation eleven twelve. 12, they're gonna experience being caught up. They're gonna be killed, but then they're gonna be raptured up, caught up again. A little bit different circumstance and, and conditions there, but you get the idea. This is not a new concept. We see this present set through the Bible of these kinds of encounters happening. Individually, of course, but one day we're going to see it happen on a grander scale where the church, all those who are believers in Christ, are going to be raptured up. Now, we also see a great account or typology 
through scripture with the Jewish wedding that's hinted at at various references. We covered this a few weeks ago when we were going through the parable of the 10 virgins. And we talked about the Jewish wedding and the great picture it is. Let me remind you what we talked about there. The Jewish wedding has three parts to it. It's got the engagement, it's got the betrothal, and then the the wedding or the wedding feast, you could say. Now, the engagement was an agreement reached between the parents of the groom and the parents of the bride, and a price was worked out for the bride, of course, paying that dowry. And so all the arrangements were made for these two to enter into this arrangement of marriage. That was the engagement. But then the betrothal was a little bit more of a um, official kind of act here. This is when the couple exchanged vows before witnesses, family, and friends. And this is when they were considered now officially married. They had covenanted to be together and to be one, and this could only be broken now by divorce. This betrothal period could last for up to a year. In the meantime, the groom would go back to his father's house and he would build an addition to the home for he and his bride to live in. So for this time of the betrothal, the sermon happened, they're married officially, but they're separated for up to a year. That's what's happening. And that's the wonderful picture that Jesus lays for us now in John chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John 14. Because Jesus now, I believe, hints towards a, a rapture. One of the, the, the specific details in the Gospels of, of a rapture. And Jesus is, is, I believe, alluding to this idea of a Jewish wedding. And, and the disciples are concerned that Jesus is talking about he's going to be going away. They're like, no, you can't leave us, Jesus. We're like a mess. We're a mess with you here. And if you're gone, we're going to be even more of a mess. We need you. And he's, they're freaking out. But Jesus comforts them in these words. He says, John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. What's Jesus doing right now? He's preparing a place for us at his father's house, which means what? He's gonna be coming back again. Where are we gonna be caught up? You see, we've seen in the Jewish wedding, we've seen the engagement, we've seen the betrothal, but then the wedding or the wedding feast. Here's what happened. When the father saw groom, things are ready, You're ready for your bride to come, go get her. The groom would make his way back unannounced. They don't have a phone. They don't have cell service. They're not like calling up saying, hey, baby, I'm on my way. Get yourself ready. It's gonna be no time at all now. They can't do that. They come unannounced and the groomsmen are preceding the groom. And guess what he's doing as he gets closer to the bride? He's blowing the shofar. The trumpet is sounding to make known that the groom is coming. And he picks up his bride, takes her away and brings her back to his father's house where they enter into the bridal chambers for the next seven days. The seven days are the wedding feast where the guests are gathered at the groom's father's house celebrating here. And the bride and the groom are in the bridal chambers here where the wedding the the marriage has been consummated this is an incredible picture here for us of what jesus is going to be doing where we're not going to be seven years in tribulation on the earth but we're going to be seven years in jubilation in heaven while the tribulation period is unfolding on the earth and after the tribulation period the the groom jesus christ 
is going to come back to the world with his bride at his side. Just as after those seven days of the marriage feast, the bride or the groom would come out with his bride and they'd celebrate with all the guests together. That leads well into our next point here, our last point that we're going to cover here. We've seen the reason for the tribulation. We've seen great accounts in scripture and typology, but notice the place of the church now in the tribulation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter one. Revelation has just some great accounts for us and great details about things to come. However, a lot of people, sadly, look at the book of Revelation and say, man, this is a, this is a hard book. I, don't, I can't read through Revelation. Churches, sadly, are staying away from the book of Revelation thinking, man, it's just filled with allegory. It's hard to make sense. It just scares people. We don't want to get into it. And sadly, the book of Revelation is being kind of put aside. I think Revelation is a book, again, that gives us great hope. Not only do we have a built-in outline for us in the book of Revelation that lays out very succinctly, I believe, what is to come, but it's also got a built-in blessing for us. Look at Revelation 1 verse 3. It says it right there for us. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Guess what, guys? When you read or even just hear the words of the book of Revelation, God says, you're gonna be blessed. She says, you're gonna be blessed. But not only do we have a built-in blessing, we have a built-in outline to make the book of Revelation very easy to follow. And I believe we can take it very literally and we can follow it very exactly. Notice what John is told in Revelation 1 verse 19. It says this, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Interesting, write the things, three, threefold outline. Write the things which you have seen, write the things which are, and thirdly, write the things which will take place after this, metatauta in the Greek. Interesting. So write the things which you've seen. What does John see? Revelation 1. What does he see? He sees a revelation of Jesus. Not crucified Jesus, but he sees resurrected, glorified Jesus, kingly Jesus in all his glory. That's what John sees. He sees, he gets a, a, a fresh glimpse of Jesus, conquering king. Write the things which you've seen, Jesus, chapter one. Write the things which are, we move into chapters two and three. What is chapter two and three? Detail, the church. It reveals specifically seven churches of Asia that were in existence while John is writing this from the Isle of Patmos as he's in um, exile there. And I think what's so wonderfully when you go through the, the seven churches is it really details for us the flow of church history. Starting with that, that church at, at Ephesus and then moving right to the church of Laodicea the lukewarm church, which brings us to today, which I think, sadly, is kind of a, when you look at church in general, right? Christendom in general has become very lukewarm. If you weren't with us when we did our Revelation series, I can't remember when we did that. It was a number of years ago. But go through chapters two and three and the study of you know, the overview of church history that we looked at in chapters two and three. So cool. So John's told, write the things which are the churches. The church age, like we saw, we're living in the church age right now. But then he's told, write the things which will take place after this. After what? After the churches. You mean there's gonna come a time when the church isn't gonna be like around like we are now? Well, not in the same way. Why? Because the church is not a building, it's a people. And the people are gonna be raptured up. Notice what we see as we move into chapter four, it just gets better and better. 
chapter 4. It says, after these things, I looked, and behold, the door, this is John speaking, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. John is now taken up into heaven. How? Come up here. And he's taken up. I think that's a great picture of the rapture. I think that's revealing to us that the church is going to be taken up into heaven before the tribulation begins because the tribulation begins to get detailed in Revelation chapter 6 and on in chapter 19. Guess what? Church, the word church is used 20 times in the book of Revelation. All but one are used in the first three chapters of Revelation. Meaning from chapter 6 on into chapter 19, beginning chapter 19, the church isn't mentioned. It's detailing what's unfolding here on earth during the tribulation, but the church isn't mentioned. Why? Because the church has been raptured up. John, Revelation chapter four, the church is in heaven. How do I know? Well, look at what we read happening. Man, Revelation chapter five, verse eight. We had a great choir today. You guys sounded awesome, but man, we're gonna be hearing some pretty incredible choirs going on in heaven. And notice the song that's gonna be sung. Look at this, Revelation five, verse eight. Or sorry, verse nine, we'll pick it up in verse nine. It says, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Man, that's a great song to sing. But guess what, guys? Who can sing that song? Are angels? Is this, is this a song for angels? Is this just the heavenly choir of angels singing? No, because they haven't been redeemed by God. They didn't need salvation. They didn't need redemption. They're not going to be made kings and priests. They're not going to be reigning with Christ. Well, we could argue for that, but we are the ones told about that are going to be reigning with Christ on the earth. In other words, when we sing that song, you have redeemed us to God by our blood, that's the song of the church. The church is singing that in heaven before the tribulation is unfolding because chapter six, now the seals are being released. That's the tribulation, the judgment of God being poured on the world. And God is not appointed us under wrath, but to obtain salvation. Oh man, I'm getting into my points for next week. We'll cover that next time. Stop me right now. Worship team, come on up here, okay? Seriously, come on up here. Yeah, we got to get going. I'm running out of time. <laughs> it's fun. It's good. Yeah, it's good. So here's the thing, guys. The church is next in Revelation in chapter 19. What's happening in chapter 19? Christ is coming back to the world. Second coming with his bride at his side. That's us, because we've been with the Lord in heaven. That wedding feast for seven years. We've been in heaven, we've been raptured up. The place of the church in the tribulation is not going through the tribulation on the earth, is being raptured up, being in heaven with the Lord, looking forward to coming back with him. When we shall reign with Christ on the earth, when he sets up his millennial reign, we're going to cover those things in, in, in the coming weeks as we continue on things to come. But today, that is a wrap, literally. Look at that. I didn't plan that, but that's a wrap. We've covered R-A-P in our rapture word. God's good. See, only God can do that, right? Okay. That's it. So <clears throat> we're going to cover these next four Next Sunday, we'll finish up our, our view on the rapture and we'll look at some more exciting things, guys, in God's word that I think really reveals to us where we're gonna be and why we're gonna be raptured up, all right? Let's pray.
Let's stand together. Lord, thank you so much for today, for just giving us your word here to look at and the hope that we have, Lord, of things to come. Things to come. Study of eschatology is not something to scare us. It's something to give us hope and excitement because we see and realize that you're coming soon, Lord. One day we're gonna be with you and see you face to face and all those that put their hope in and purifies themselves as he is pure. So Lord, we do that today. We wanna just live and abide in you. We wanna live expectantly, excitedly. We wanna live evangelistically, Lord, knowing time is short. Help us to spread the good news with many people around us, Lord. We pray for our, our loved ones, Lord, that don't know you. Would you lead them to you, Jesus? Lord, we pray that we be active living out our faith, Lord. Uh, I pray too just for uh, our, our friends in the church that lost a loved one this past week, Derek, Lord, we pray, God, for Aaron and Joe, we pray for Derek's wife, Renee, we pray that you would just comfort them, touch them, Lord, today here, God, and uh, just be with them, let them know your presence so real in their lives, Lord, and the loss of, uh, of uh, a husband, a son, a father, Lord, so just bless that family, God, and we just thank you for the hope that we'll be reunited together one day with all those that have their faith in you, Jesus. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. We look forward to that day. And until then, let us keep praising you and worshiping you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together.